I like to describe agriculture um, producers in general as the ever optimists. You know, it's always going to get better. It can always get better. And um, unfortunately, in some of our areas in Montana here, you know, we're going on year three to four of a drought and we still have areas that have not seen appreciable rain or snowfall in that time frame. So still relying on a lot of those harvested forages. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming soon. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. All right, welcome to this episode of the Beef Podcast. My name is Dr. Stephanie Hansen. I'm a feedlot nutritionist here at Iowa State University in Ames, Iowa. Um, and our guest today is Dr. Megan Van Emmen from um, Montana State University. She's been an Extension Beef Cattle Specialist since 2014. Her research focuses on supplementation strategies, cow-calf production, drought management, and water quality. Her research and extension programs focus on improving beef cattle production in Montana and throughout the United States. For the past few years, Megan has been focusing on beef cattle drought management in her extension programming, haven't we all? Uh, Meg grew up on a small farm in Northeast Indiana, received her bachelor's and master's um, in animal science from Purdue, and her PhD in ruminant nutrition at North Dakota State University. Meg was actually a postdoc with us here at Iowa State University before joining the animal and range sciences faculty at Montana State. She's located off campus at the USDA ARS Fort Keogh in Miles City. Welcome, Meg. All right. Well, thanks for having me. I was trying to think when the last time we saw each other was, and I think we saw each other in Fort Collins last year, right, for Western Animal Science? Yes. Yeah. It's been a while. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fun meeting. That was the first time we had gone out there and we took the took the grad students and out and did a little hiking in Estes Park and stuff before the meeting. So. Oh, all right. Yeah. Did you make it out to... Utah this year? Park City, right? No, ended up going to national meetings this year in Oklahoma City. So went down there and presented a few papers. Gotcha. Right. Yeah, yeah. I saw you down there too. Time flies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was May just last week, in case anybody wondered. <laughs> it definitely was May just last week. And it's not that we have snow in the forecast here in uh, no. November of 2022. So, all right. Well, um, our purpose with this podcast is to kind of get the latest and greatest in beef research and extension philosophies out there to um, beef producers across the U.S. Um, or maybe even internationally with the way the podcast can be available now. So we kind of chatted ahead of time about a few things that we might want to talk about. So um, I want to ask this question first, though. Go back a few years, several years now, right? You're an associate professor now. When you first came into your position in Montana, what did you think your program was going to focus on? Oh goodness, wow, that's a that's a tough one. You know, you you come in and and you're all bright eyed and bushy tailed, ready to get going on programming. And I and I think I thought you know coming from from your lab would be you know a lot of focus on you know the importance of minerals on cow calf nutrition. Um, you know, just basically some basic management and thinking also that. I worked a little too hard on some of the basic stuff, but there's always those questions on some basic nutrition information that, that those producers wanted. So luckily that has kind of helped, I guess, form my, my extension programming over the last few years to hopefully keep dry, diving a little more in depth on maybe just some basic needs. Um, the last few years too, record keeping has been a big 
uh, focus as well. Um, still have a lot of producers that don't keep records of their cattle or who calves, which calf belongs to which cow, um, even preg checking, you know, in the fall and everything. That's that's kind of was surprising to me. So I've been trying to get some more of that basic information out there. So hope hopefully that <laughs> keeps going on in the future and we keep improving and keep going. Yeah, I think that's one of the values of um, going from a very intensive beef production system like we have here in the Midwest where I'm located and where you were really kind of raised in the beef industry. And then you're in a very a much more extensive system out there, right? I always uh, have to explain to students, right? Like they may not even have a tractor because it's really hard to depreciate that tractor over, you know, 1200 cows when you don't have to do like the corn plowing and stuff like you do here. So it's a very different system when it comes to labor and inputs. Yeah, it was definitely an eye opener coming from out here, you know, doing my doctorate in North Dakota, I thought I had a a pretty good grasp on maybe smaller town, um, Western United States, but you kind of get out here and realize there's a lot smaller towns than even where um, I did my work in Hedinger. And, you know, you're talking to, you know, in a town of maybe two to 300 people and, and everything, but always, always had really good feedback and really great producers to work with. That's, I think the big thing is, is finding those producers that are really willing to, you know, be a little more proactive. Yeah, absolutely. I always love when you go to a meeting and get lots of good questions. That's how you know you've hit the nail on the head, right? Like, ooh, they were interested in that. Yeah, it took me a while to learn that, you know, having 50, you know, 100 people at a meeting wasn't the most important. It's even just having five or 10. And if you get all those questions and you feel you're really engaging that audience, that that's where the importance is, because you might have just also engaged in that smaller community, you know, a thousand, two thousand head of cattle, just because that's how extensive and how large the herds are here. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely those impact players. Okay, so fast forward then a few years, going in bright-eyed and bushy-tailed as we all do into our faculty positions, and that we were we were kind of talking in our pre-show discussion about the reality that is the beef industry has faced over the last several years now in parts of the country, and that is drought with a capital D. So let's talk a little bit about um, some of the programming efforts that you've worked on there at Montana State around um, kind of drought management, we, and maybe starting with. What things are you talking to producers about right now as we think about cows being pulled off of pastures, pulled off of range, moving to the home place, and we start to think about them moving into winter, harvested forages, harvested feedstuffs? What are the things that you're um, telling producers to keep top of mind? Um, well, um, as at least last year, specifically in Montana and probably a lot of the Western U.S. has shown, um, keeping that hay and harvested forage inventory, you know, recommending at least one year, hopefully two years of that forage held back just for the reason of, you know, the drought and having to possibly extend that harvested forages feeding, you know, last year, Um, At least in our area, we started feeding forages in some areas in July, maybe August, and then had to hold those cows all the way over until May. And luckily some, you know, this year, at least in 2022, a lot of Montana, you know, it started raining May 15th and we got some really good rains and had really good uh, pasture growth as well as hay crop. So luckily able to kind of come back to that harvested forage growth and, you know, have a better hay crop this year. But um, noticed after we had a lot of... um, a good hay crop in 2019. Um, A lot of that harvested forage got sold 
um, didn't keep probably as much back as as you should because um, I like to describe agriculture um, producers in general as the ever optimists. You know, it's always going to get better. It can always get better. And um, unfortunately, in some of our areas in Montana here, you know, we're going on year three to four of a drought and we still have areas that have not seen appreciable rain or snowfall in that time frame. So still relying on a lot of those harvested forages. So, um, you know, inventory is probably the big one. Uh, also culling management, you know, where, where do you start with that selective culling? Um, you know, and, and I also say everybody's got Bessie out there, you know, she's your favorite cow or the grandkids favorite cow. And, um, she weighs 1800 pounds and she weans a 300 pound calf every year. Cause Bessie's a body condition score eight or nine and, um, probably isn't pulling her weight production wise, but you know, that, that might be the time to consider, you know, Bessie may need to go down the road, but then whoa, obviously whoa, whoa. She, I, I know Bessie down the road. Um, and I'm feeling, I'm feeling a little called out here, Meg. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's the hard part is how do you call that one favorite cow that everybody's everybody's got. But, um, you know, that's been the big one, as well as then, um, as I know, Dr. Junowski is probably going to talk with you about in another episode, um, nitrate issues. Um, We ran into a lot of that the last couple of years and how to effectively manage those. um, Because for some of those producers, that's all they have to feed is higher nitrate feeds. And unfortunately, you know, those rules of thumb we think about with straw, uh, feeding straw or those higher nitrate feeds, we've kind of had to throw those out the window because that's just what we had available. Um, and fortunately, you know, have only heard a few wrecks come up, come up, but um, there have been a few and they've been significant, but luckily it's been pretty minimal. I'm not saying they're not important, but hopefully that feeding management wise that, you know, they managed through it versus um, not being able to manage through it and, and able to keep at least some of those genetics around that they've been, you know, developing over the years. So let's, let's circle back. I was writing a couple of notes here down and um, you said that there might be places where cows started receiving hay in July and didn't see new green grass until May. And as a micronutrient nutritionist, that kind of makes me shiver a little bit, right? And and we both know what what I'm thinking about. So tell us tell us what your what your vitamin A issues have maybe looked like there in the last few years. Yeah, um, that you know it's one of those we don't think too much about if you've got that green forage out there. And then the last few years, a lot of two three year old hay has been fed, um, a lot of straw. So you know, vitamin A, you think green forage, without green forage, not very much vitamin A. Um, So I think there's been those that have had a really good mineral nutrition program, or at least a good um, mineral vitamin pack in some of their lick tubs or their their K cubes or things like that, that have weathered that storm a little better than some of the other producers that maybe have cut that out. Um, Because it is expensive, but it's not something I ever recommend. It's it's an insurance policy. So, these, let's see, last spring, which would be 2021, as well as this spring, because of that extended feeding of those older forages, we ran into some abortion issues um, with vitamin A deficiency or just some really sick calves, um, you know, those calves that just don't thrive after calving time. And, you know, if they if they happen to die, they have been necropsied in Luckily, I guess it was diagnosed as a vitamin A deficiency, and so at least that's counter. We can we can counteract that with some vitamin A injectables, um, and just getting back that that vitamin and mineral nutrition program as well. 
Yeah, I think we'll let's do a little uh, public service announcement here for those who um, <laughs> don't know as much as us about uh, vitamin and mineral nutrition. So um, one of the unique things about uh, vit- fat, fat soluble vitamins, so vitamin A and E, uh, D and K, when we think about those, the cow gives very little via the placenta to the calf. So when that calf is born, if he was born stillborn and you send him to the, the vet for necropsy, they, they would come back and say, there's no fat soluble vitamins in this calf. And they would be correct because the cow didn't give any during gestation, right? Um, but if that calf did get to nurse, got colostrum, things like that, and then you still have very low fat soluble vitamins like vitamin A or vitamin E, then you definitely can lean in and say, yeah, we might have a suspected vitamin A or vitamin E problem here. So that's one of those really important cases of making sure that um, as producers, you have good conversations with your vet and think about what's the appropriate appropriate reference range to look at. Is this a, a newborn who never got a chance to suckle? Is this a newborn who didn't didn't really go after it very much, so he might be really low anyway? Or is this one that, yep, he was fine for a few days, he, he definitely nursed, and now all of a sudden he's he's sick or, or has died on us. So yeah, I think the micronutrient deficiency might be um, you know, one of the challenges that we'll see again coming into this winter. So uh, what other things are you talking to producers about, Meg, as you say, okay, this might be year two, three, four of drought, uh, hay stocks are limited because the optimistic farmer decided to sell all of his hay last year to, to make some money. We don't blame him or her. Um, what, what things need to be top of mind as we think about cow herd nutrition going into the winter? Well, um, one of the big ones, at least I discuss with those producers is body condition, you know, making sure those cows are in good condition coming into the winter months. You know, we all, we all know a lot of times the weather is not a hundred percent predictable. And, um, as we move into those winter months, you know, we know at least in our area, we're going to get to 20, 30 below, you know, January, February timeframe. I'm, I'm sorry to those producers that are listening up here in Montana, but, um, we always like to think it's going to be a better winter, but you know, if you look at some of those long range forecasts we're they're talking an extended winter period, um, cold, snowy, which honestly, you know, we don't want, but we really need, um, just to help us recover more from the drought or at least help get us maybe more towards the positive plane of precipitation, um, for the year. So, um, one of the big ones is obviously, uh, protein, you know, during those winter months, especially for those cattle out on pasture. Um, you know, we try to extend the grazing season as, as long as we possibly can and protein starts to get limited, you know, even as early up here as, you know, July, August, as those forages start to senesce out there. Um, but right, you know, she's, she's getting close to weaning time. She's probably not nursing that calf so much. So those protein needs aren't as, aren't as important at, you know, during those fall months, but as we move into the cold, she's going to start to require a lot more protein, especially as we get closer to calving. Um, energy wise, you know, if they're eat, getting a good, good meal every day, you know, they're full, um, energy needs are going to be pretty good and, you know, close to met, but we still want to see some better quality forages available. And, and I always, you know, I try to break it down on a, price per pound of nutrient basis for those cows. But one thing to also consider, you know, you might find a really cheap supplement, but is it easy to feed? Can you get enough of it? Um, You know, what's that labor cost that gets it out there? So, you know, a lot of times one of our cheapest supplements is that alfalfa, good quality alfalfa or, um, you know, grass alfalfa hay or even just a good quality grass hay just to help meet those protein needs out there. But um, one of the things we discuss, I mean, 
Last year, I was kind of surprised. We didn't see a lot of thin cows. I saw some thinner cows, you know, that body condition score three. Um, Not as many as I saw in 2017 with our flash trout, which was just a one a year and done, um, where a lot of those cows were in poor condition um, that fall. And then we went into one of the worst winters in 100 years here. So that really played a huge detrimental role um, on that cow condition. So... What do you think were the differences as you consider what you saw producers doing in 2017 versus what they're doing now? Why are they, why do they seem to be better prepared? I, I, th- I think that's it. I think some of them are just more better prepared for this type of drought, at least in the short term, you know, um, if we consider, you know, and unfortunately, you know, we had COVID the last few years, but it also kind of coincided with one of those really horrible droughts. And it's been a prolonged drought, as we've seen also with COVID. It just kind of keeps lingering out there. And um, what I'm seeing is that some of those producers, at least that first year, kind of weathered the storm a little bit better. They they started feeding a little bit early versus in 2017, it, it was kind of more of an and optimistic, like, oh, it'll be fine this winter, you know, we'll get snow and, and everything will be good. I've, I've got some hay. Um, and uh, just wondering how those cows came through 2017 and those that are still in the herd, you know, how maybe they have changed metabolically and biologically, especially during um, those calves that were born in the spring of 2018. Um, and those heifers, are they still in the herd? And maybe they, they're able to weather the storm a little bit better, right? The environment does impact a lot of our um, production needs and our production from those cows in, in the subsequent years. So um, be interesting to see if maybe some of those cows that are weathering a little better were from some, some of those harsher times when those nutrient supplies were limiting. Um, and I also think, you know, especially the fall, we didn't expect to, the drought in 2017, it came on pretty hard and fast. And, um, you know, snow, I believe, if I remember right, set in like the first first weekend in October. And we didn't see it. Yeah, it cold and snowy that first weekend. And it did not end until, um, you know, about March, April, that following year. So, you know, if they were already kind of behind, it was really difficult to get them to make up some of those nutrient imbalances. Whereas this year, at least the last few years, maybe a little bit more proactive in getting those, those uh, nutrients out to those cows, whether it's, you know, a hay or um, a lot of wheat mid pellets were fed or alfalfa cubes um, were fed these last few years, just trying to get some extra nutrients out to those, those cows. Uh, I think this last this last spring was kind of long and cold for you guys up there too, right? Yeah, we had two spring storms, um, kind of a week apart. And honestly, um, you know, from the some of the producers I spoke to, um, they were so happy for the moisture. You know, they they were so willing to battle that moisture, even though it was right smack in the middle of calving season up here. And um, unfortunately, sometimes we have to pay that ultimate price. We lo- we lose some calves to illness, um, the cold, and things like that. But in regards, we we also, at least in a lot of the areas of Montana, got some good pasture growth out of it, Um, at least kind of in the southern part. I know there's, um, I'll have some extension agents call and tell me about uh, how awful it still is up in the north central part and kind of west central Montana that they didn't receive any of that moisture. But um, fortunately for a lot of us, we did receive good moisture this spring and got some good pasture growth. We were able to turn those girls out onto some green grass this year. 
Yeah, I was in Glacier National Park, which would be the northwest corner of Montana, um, for anybody who doesn't know. And I was there in uh, first couple of weeks of July. And normally that road going to the Sun Road that goes through there is traditionally open by July 1st or July 4th at the latest. They've only ever had like two or three times. And one of them was like the war when they weren't open by like that time. And we were there on July 12th and we got to ride our bikes up part of going to the Sun Road because it was still closed to traffic because on July 1st, they had a 40 foot snow drift to still push through. <laughs> um, so they opened the road on July 13th. That actually ended up being a pretty cool experience because not very many people hit that really narrow window between when they let the cars in and uh, things like that. So that was cool, but I definitely felt for your producers and how cold and long that spring had been if that snow was still that high at that time. I guess it, it was needed, so we, we didn't complain too much, but, you know, definitely, you know, we lost some calves in that, in those storms. And, um, yeah, it's one of the fun things. I've only been up part of the going to the Sun Road because it was the other half was closed for construction here quite a while ago. So I um, need to get back up there and, and experience that again, even though heights are not my thing and <laughs> always afraid I'm going to drive off the side of the road. <laughs> so maybe have somebody else drive. <laughs> uh, so I wanted to circle back to something you mentioned earlier, and uh, this will be appropriate for producers to think about in the upcoming months. Um uh, what do you talk to producers about for cold stress or what kind of strategies do you see producers adopting to deal with cold stress, which seems like it's only gotten worse, right? Like it's, yeah. been, it's bigger, it's more dramatic. It's, it's 20 below for a week instead of 20 below for 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the, that's the difficult question. You know, as you know, Steph, um, you know, the NRC hasn't updated their, their cold stress or their, um, winter requirements, you know, and since, oh goodness, 1984 or one, I can't remember whichever 80s version of the nutrient requirements uh, came out. So, you know, that's, you know, 40 years, we don't like to, to think about that too much, but, um, you know, and, and the general recommendation was just energy, you know, you just need to increase your energy, you know, rule of thumb, 1% energy requirements for every degree below 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, um, one of the things I guess that's that's nice about Montana is we do get those those big temperature swings, and and if those cows have time to adapt to our colder temperatures, which hopefully this fall they did. We had a nice fall, kind of got cold a little more gradually than some years. Um, you know, luckily we haven't been daytime temp below zero yet, but it's been close in some of our areas. But you know, those cows will adapt to some of our colder temperatures. They can develop that hair coat. So. Um, that's one thing to consider in some of those requirements. And, and we know not just energy increases during the winter. So one of the big things, I guess, if we get to these cold, cold snaps, you know, for us, you know, 20, 30 below, um, you know, feeding maybe not your super high quality forage, like a, like a really high quality alfalfa, the, that greater than 20% protein, you know, feeding something in that grass, hay range, um, even mixed with straw, trying to get that, that, uh, that forage just sit in that rumen a little bit longer. Um, keep that rumen using that heat to that because that's what the cows use to to stay warm in the winter time is using that rumen heat and a fermentation there. Um, also recommend you know if you can feed maybe once or twice a day, you know, or roll out some of that hay closer to evening time. I know it's hard when it gets dark at quarter after four. I mean we're we're getting towards four o'clock when when it's starting to get dark now and. Um, 
and it gets a little bit more difficult to feed, but, you know, rolling it out so they can keep that fermentation going all night, you know, especially on those really cold nights. But, you know, right now, um, we don't have a lot of wind, but that's our big factor as well as is the wind out here. You know, it could be zero degrees during the day, but, you know, 20, 30 mile an hour wind really drops that temperature. So just some producers, you know, they have some more enclosed areas, um, you know, tree cover, things like that. Anywhere they can kind of huddle up and get out of the wind is kind of a big factor that that I discuss with producers is how can the, how can you get those cows to a better um or more moderate energy demand, I guess, than, um, you know, being full out in the wind. And, you know, when it, it's cold out, you're going to see them hunkered down, not really wanting to go to go to feed very much. Um, and then when it gets nice out, the sun comes out and everything. Um, they'll be out grazing, picking through some of that that snow to get to the forage that's there. Um, but one thing, you know, if you, if you go out and you see all that snow on the cow's back, you know, if it's not melting, you know, she's got a pretty good insulation going on there. So, and that's also where body condition comes in. The better body condition they're in um, helps them weather that winter a little bit better too, can, can help them withstand that storm um, or two as, as those temps drop. And um, big one too, a question I get about in the wintertime is, well, can um, my cows only eat snow? Do I have to provide them a water source? Um, and my answer is yes, you, you need to provide them some sort of water source to help maintain that food and that feed intake, um, to keep them going. You know, they can eat snow for a little while, you know, just to kind of get them by, especially if it's, you know, you got a big winter storm coming and things like that, they'll do their best they can, but, um, definitely having an open water source so they can get a good fresh, fresh drink of water can really help keep them going as, as we move into those higher requirements pre-calving. I think they've done some research up in Canada, actually, that suggests that cows can kind of meet their water requirements from snow. But I I think your point really is, if you want to keep up feed intake, they're going to need more than that, right? And so trying to get to that, yeah. So, And we always teach the students, right, in feedlot nutrition, right? It's like, oh, if there's a bunch of feed left in the bunk, first thing you check is the water. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Is the water froze or dirty or shocking them or what's the issue, right? Because water intake drives feed intake. So absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think for a few days, you know, as they weather a storm or something like that, they can definitely get by on just the snow that's on the ground. But I don't know about anybody else, but I don't, you know, and if it's 30 below, I don't really want to go eat snow either as a water source. It works when we need it too, but definitely not something to solely rely on in the winter time. Yeah, especially since cows actually prefer slightly warmer water. If you give them the choice, they'd rather drink something that's warmer rather than cold. Mm-hmm. Awesome. What other topics or things have you been uh, working on out there, Meg, thinking about? Um, Wanted to make sure that you could get that opportunity to share that with our producer audience. That's a hard one. We always try to think what's going to be the the next big thing. Um, What's your crystal ball? (laughs) Yeah, I haven't predicted it yet. So obviously, I'm I'm not a psychic or anything. You know, who would have predicted, you know, three years ago, we'd be going on this year three of a drought in some of these areas, especially when um, just a few years years ago, the big topic was, gosh, we had so much rain. All my hay is moldy. What, what do we do? Um, so that's, that's kind of the, I guess the game we play, or at least the, the, the strategy we have to come up with and, um, and what's going to be the next big thing. I, I, 
hopefully next year it won't be drought anymore and it'll just maybe go back to some some cattle management you know some strategic supplementation work and how to keep those cows out grazing for you versus versus well we have no grass what do we do now and um, one of the big ones, I guess, I, I've been asked to cover several times is just some general um, record keeping, you know, what, what records should producers be keeping, um, how best to keep those records. And, and, and as you know, there's several programs available that are internet based um, or cell phone based, how, however you want to use it, that you can um, input all your records into. And um Obviously, we can still use the pen and paper. You know, it doesn't have to be extremely fancy or anything. I just, I just like to see if you write it down, especially knowing which cow calves, which cow goes or which calf goes to which cow. You know, that can really help you make those decisions of which replacements to keep in the herd, um, how best to utilize some of those records as well. Um, after calving, you know, genetics wise. Um, you know, our seed stock guys, you know, they're, or, or gals, you know, they keep a lot of records. You know, we, we have a grad student right now who's one of the bigger seed stock producers and she's a grad student. And I've never seen somebody so organized with records before. And we went out and we're doing some work with her and, you know, she had an Excel file open with, I don't know, 30 different columns of all the things that they, they measure um, as well as a paper copy of everything that they were double cross checking and stuff. So you, you can be that um, intense or, you know oh I don't have oh here we go this is obviously an old one you know NCBA red book you know you can keep records in there hopefully don't use it lose it or anything um you know keep that tucked in the pocket but just keeping some general records so you know when you're t- it's time to make some of those decisions you have a tool to use t- to make those and I and I think that's the big thing too is management tools um with that general record keeping and, and everything, um, you know, that was kind of the surprise to me as well when, you know, I talk about it and, you know, there's still producers that don't preg check in the fall and just, you know, you're carrying maybe some open cows over to the winter. And especially these last few years, it's very important to minimize those opens because they're just eating, eating for you. They aren't really doing much for you production wise. Um, and then I thought of a sec, another thing, well, I was saying that and now I don't remember what it was. So obviously it wasn't super important. Um, but, oh, oh, body condition, you know, um, do some workshops on that. Um, otherwise, a lot of what my focus is has been on is the drought, obviously, but also hopefully maybe get back into those supplements, t- supplementation strategies and how to more effectively use some of those supplements, commercial or otherwise, that are out there and, and how best to use those for the cattle herd. Yeah, absolutely. That fits a lot with what our research is here, right, on strategic supplementation of things like minerals and vitamins. Um, on body condition score, I always, you know, tell producers it's it's really hard to try to add body condition during the winter. That is the most expensive time to try to do that. So think about how you don't let her get into really poor shape at the end of summer and all of a sudden realize that you need to add a body condition score by the time she calves or breeds or you're going to be in trouble. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, we're seeing quite a few thinner cows come through this year, you know, there's, you can only feed them so much, you know, or whatever you have available. And if you don't have anything available, we've, you know, we've, we've maybe managed those cows into a body condition score three or four, hoping to tough them out a little bit. Um, I suppose on, on one side, you could say, well, they're weaning themselves out of the herd, but also is that the cow that you want weaned out of the herd as, you know, 
based on on some management issues there. So um, that's that's kind of the big discussion of of when's too much of a body condition or when's too much and when when's too little and how how best we can get them moved forward into the next year because right calf a calf a year um, is our goal and and hopefully those cows are meeting that and um, then kind of on along those same lines you know doing a um, during drought you know doing an early preg check um, we had a lot of producers doing a preg check you know 45-ish days after their breeding season end or they tightened up their breeding season in the last few years and only keeping some of those AI animals or or something like that as as well as then doing then another preg check prior to to culling um, some of those open cows because sometimes you can you know if if you know 45 days we're you know, our veterinarians are doing a really good job, but if we get earlier than that, that gets a little bit to, to be a little bit more difficult in assessing pregnancy status, especially AI versus maybe some natural service, depending on how um, long after AI you turned out those bulls. So doing some things like that, um, you know, I'm not a reproductive physiologist, but, you know, that's, I, I try to t- speak very generic about those things. <laughs> so, um, you know, just checking and things like that. Yeah. I think, you know, I think there's some nice data out there, right. That say that, you know, the cows that calve earlier are going to obviously produce the heaviest calves at weaning because those calves have been on the ground longer. They're more likely to have those cows breed back. If a calf is born early, a heifer is born early, she's more likely to calf again herself early in the season. Right. So there's probably some hereditary fertility there. So yeah, I think that those things are, are, are all good, good comments. Yep. Yeah, that's, well, and the big question the last few years is keeping those heifer replacements, you know, do you keep heifer replacements because they're going to take more energy, you know, some extra labor, extra feed, getting them ready to breed, um, or do you keep some of those older cows and, you know, and I, it's kind of one of those, if you, if she's 13 and made it through your herd and she's obviously paid for herself over and over again with that, that calf, you know, maybe is it time for her to go down the road unless she's producing well for you still? So, um, those are some decisions, you know, you throw out there as generalities and then, um, the producer then has to make those, those difficult decisions. But one thing I always like to stress with our heifer replacements is not all heifers are destined to be replacement heifers in a breeding herd. You know, some of them are destined for the, for the feedlot and, and marketing early for those, um, can really help the bottom line as well as selling those cull cows in a timely manner um, before the flood of the market here is, you know, and we've, well, in Montana, we've seen kind of a steady stream of cows coming through the last, you know, throughout the year. Uh, However, you know, as, as you preg check in the fall, those cull cows are going to come and flood through the market, October, November, December. And is it a possibility of holding them over, maybe putting some extra weight on them, or, you know, maybe they are late bred and you can sell them as such, you know, but I think just different marketing streams too is something to look at um, as a cow calf producer, because you have, especially seed stock, obviously you're looking for your bull calves and maybe some of those heifers, but um, for those commercial guys, you know, steer calves, getting the best price for them, you know, looking at maybe some of those video auctions and then those heifer calves, whether they're breeding or feedlot destined. Yeah, absolutely. It's time for Famous Three. 
All right. I think we'll go ahead and wrap up here with the last few questions that apparently are going to be a part of this podcast every time. So I don't know if you saw these or not, or this will be, this will be like the lightning round at the end of Brene Brown's podcast. So (laughs) what is your favorite beef resource? Oh, and actually I read the question, but I meant to bring it out. Um, I truly, I like the NRC, but I truly like to use the Oklahoma State Beef Handbook Guide. Um, No offense to any other beef handbook guides out there. Um, Just because everything I feel is more on layman's terms and it's very easily conveyed to to producers. And it's something that they can pick up and and buy themselves um, for... Um, from Oklahoma State and, you know, be able to look through it and, you know, and really have those, those questions. Um, And then I I guess I have two. The other one is also the Iowa State brand software. I think it's very easy to use, very easily calculated for, for those cattle diets. Um, So I, I know most of our extension agents up here use it as well. And I just think it's one of those really good resources that producers, extension agents, faculty, everybody can use. That's, that's really helpful. Nice. I didn't even have to pay you for that plug for the Iowa State software. Dan did. Dan did. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. He's hunting mule deer in western Nebraska this week, so he's not here. But Garland's down the hall who wrote the brand software. So, (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm sure Dan is cold this week. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know. I'm I'm a fair weather everything anymore. So I I don't think I want to be out hunting right now. Yeah. Apparently he bought a really awesome teepee that has like some sort of fire thing or like heat source in the middle. So he was fully prepared for it to be cold. He said it was seven degrees yesterday morning. So I'm sure he's fine. (laughs) He'll be fine. He'll be fine. (laughs) All right. Question number two, what is a book not related to beef that you are currently reading? Oh goodness. Um, I'm almost finished with that with actually the new uh, Janet Ivanovich book, uh, Going Rogue. I enjoy the Stephanie Plum series, so I um, always look forward to her. And then I'm also – I kind of have about eight books I'm in the middle of, but I'm also reading um, – Oh, A.G. Riddle's uh, Pandemic. It's a fiction book as well, but it's it's kind of interesting just based on the fact that we just went through a pandemic and, and the responses, because um, he did actually go to like the World Health Organization and the CDC and learn like what their responses are to some of these global pandemics and everything. So it's been, it's a fictional read, but it's been kind of interesting as well on that regard. Nice. Uh, did you read his earlier ones? Was it like Atlantis or? Yes. Um, yeah. He had a whole series of ones that were kind of along that lines. Yeah. No. And I, and that's what, that's why I picked up this book. Um, I think it's a first in two or three books or again, but, um, but yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed the Atlantis, whatever that, whatever, whatever that, yeah. that series is called. Um, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed those books. So that's why I picked this up and yeah. Nice. I thought that question is funny because I was thinking, when was the last time I read a book related to beef, right? Like other than like the NRC and things like that, I definitely am not sitting at home at night being like, what book can I flip through tonight? It's about beef, unless it's a cookbook. Yes, yes. I definitely read those. Yes. All right. What is a trait of someone you know that has allowed them to be successful? Oh, wow. I didn't read that question. (laughs) Going to make you think Um, on your feet. I know. And I would... I would have to say, you know, just heart, you know, one of the, one of the big things to be successful, you know, isn't always the best education or anything. It's, it's just being hardworking, you know, willing to work for that goal. And, and I think I have several friends and colleagues that, that worked and strive for that hardworking, you know, um, 
and trying to become a successful faculty member, staff, fr- you know, friend, whatever, whatever their career or personal goals are, is just working very hard at that and trying to better themselves, I think, is, is the big thing. Nice. I like it. Hard work and continuous improvement. That's what I heard there. <laughs> yeah, that's been a lot more words, but yeah, that's, that's a hard, there's so many good traits. and Yeah, that's good. We got lots of good people around us here in this industry. So Yes, we do. Yeah, it's amazing how small the industry is once you kind of get out there and realize like, oh, I met them and they know this, you know, they know you or, or Dan or somebody. And it's kind of interesting to see how, how small the industry is. Absolutely. It is definitely, definitely a small industry. Well, thanks, Meg, so much for your time today. This has been really great to get to have a chat with you and hopefully producers find a lot of value in our talk today. Well, thank you for having me. This was very fun and hopefully do it again in the future sometime. Absolutely. 